Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, Phil Goldfeder away on assignment this week. And 2019, a new year in politics. This is not one of those big years. This is a you know kind of the minor league year. No congressional elections. A couple big gubernatorial elections. No, obviously everybody's gearing up for the presidential election. So we have. This is kind of like the turn. If you will, uh, the mid-term of the presidency, 2017 in the bag for Trump, 2018 now in the bag for Trump, and some big changes are afoot in the administration. As we well know, still an acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, uh, the president having failed to actually secure a uh, maybe the chief of staff that he wanted. Who knows? Maybe this was it. James Mattis. Uh, resigning, although president indicated that he was fired. And, you know, we're moving along uh, into a whole brave new world for this presidency. And he is going to awake today to a whole new reality in Washington that is divided government. If you think that kind of government was dysfunctional or at odds or warring over the last two years, let's remind ourselves that we had a Republican president, a Republican House, and a Republican Senate. And all three, well, they did pass the tax reform package, and they did pass some other stuff, but health care in itself didn't happen. Major reform packages didn't happen. And We definitely saw a lot of dysfunction coming from Washington over the last two years. Let's see how the next two years, with Democrats in charge of the House, are going to affect this White House. And there's no question about it. And I know that people out there are going to say that the White House is still attracting the best and the brightest. But there is no question about it that the ranks in the White House are depleted. There are jobs that are open. It's very clear. Uh, we don't even have regular press briefings anymore. Not that they necessarily need those. But apparently the press staff is tremendously depleted. Uh, there was an article I saw the other day about the fact that they are not even responding to many press inquiries. So um, just not responding. And in fact, like it's not as if they're just saying, no comment, but they're actually the White House is actually not responding to some of the inquiries that come along, whether they just choose not to. And as we enter 2019 as well, let's not forget that we have the shutdown going on. Now, whether it's the Schumer shutdown or the Trump shutdown, the president wanted to own it. Now, he doesn't necessarily want to own it. But I think the issue we have with this shutdown is the instead of kind of coming together over the last two weeks, remember the president didn't take his vacation. He was supposed to go to Palm Beach and there was a deal on the table until the last minute he decided there wasn't going to be a deal on the table. There are a couple things going on with this shutdown that kind of scare me that say this might not be a good way out of this. I mean, who is going to blink? And if it's all just become a game of chicken and everybody has to kowtow to their kind of base, not their base instincts, but to their base itself. I mean, let's recall the president was willing to make a deal and sign 
a continuing resolution. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a formal budget. We're just talking about the ability to fund the government for another couple weeks until the money runs out again. And that's not necessarily the way to govern. It's not a good way to govern, but it's better than actually shutting the government down. And, you know, I flew uh, last week to Israel and, you know, go through the airport. You have TSA workers who are there on the holidays and they aren't being paid. And that's difficult thing to do. And you go a couple pay cycles without actually getting paid. That's not, it doesn't necessarily contribute to a good work environment. Now, if you're saying, well, there's a greater goal here, there's a greater good, we need to protect the country, we need border security, I agree with that. Uh, I'm Look, I'm not in favor of the wall. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, but I definitely think we need increased border security. The, situa- the immigration system in this country is broken, and both parties are to blame for not fixing it. But like with anything, like with governing, there is an element of compromise. And I know the purists on each side and... I consider myself to be pretty conservative. The purists on each side say to themselves, well, we must have this, and this is the only way it's going to happen, and the reason they went for the wall a couple weeks ago is because that was the only possibility. Now the Democrats are taking over the House. There's no chance of having the wall. I, you know, I fail to see this, this whole wall thing. You know, the Great Wall of China was built centuries ago, and... Yes, Israel has a wall, but you have people living in very close proximity, and it's more of a it's a terrorism situation. And there are a million different reasons, or let's just say ten different reasons that I could go through as to why the wall in Israel is going to be altogether different than a wall along two thousand two hundred miles of border. And you know the problem here is with the positioning of it. And we look at the positioning of how the president has kind of backed himself into a corner here. Now, some might say, well, this is exactly the plan all along. There's a method to his madness. And there has been, there is a certain political genius of Donald Trump. I I, I concede that. And I, I have come to appreciate and admire it. The problem is I can't figure it out. And I don't think a lot of other people can either. And I don't even think people in his administration have figured it out. Case in point, you have... Jared Kushner, Mike Pence, and Mick Mulvaney, arguably the three most powerful people outside of the president himself, going to negotiate with Senator Schumer on the wall issue. And Schumer's pretty adamant. You're not getting the wall. And they're negotiating with him. And Pence says, well, we'll take $2.5 billion instead of the 5.4. And the president says no. So you send people out to negotiate and... They don't represent you. I mean, who represents the the problem here is who represents the views of the president aside from the president. And that's kind of what everybody's waiting for. They get everybody goes into a meeting yesterday and Senator McConnell, I think appropriately and smartly says the Senate is not going to pass anything that doesn't have the support of the president, because why should they? It doesn't politically. It makes no sense. Even governmentally, it makes no sense. If this itself is not going to pass and we can't have, we don't have the votes to override a veto, you know, uh, if it's not, I'm sorry, it's not going to become law. It could pass the Senate with the support of Democrats and Republicans together, uh, a clean bill, which is what they're looking for. The clean bill meaning, you know, not, nothing, just a basic continuation of what was funded beforehand. And if you can't get that because you don't know what the president's view on this, 
then, well, there's really not reason to talk about it. And the administration has, you know, sending their three most powerful people to negotiate with Schumer. But at the same time, the only thing that really matters is the view of President Trump himself. Now, some people might like it that way. Some people out there are probably saying to themselves, that's the way it should be. It's really the president's view that matters. But the truth is, you cannot have... Government can't function if it relies entirely on the views of a single person. They have to be able to delegate. You have to be able to say to other people that they be able to negotiate and craft solutions on your behalf. There just aren't enough hours of the day for one person to deal with all and micromanage all the functions and layers of government. And even to hear viewpoints and ideas on all those functions and layers of government. And to do so, of course, also with a depleted staff. And, you know, Mick Mulvaney is chief of staff, and he's replacing John Kelly. The chief of staff job, as and if you read any books about this and listen to anybody who held the job, uh, is the most difficult job in the government. They say by far. In fact, Dick Cheney has long complained about his heart issues, his longtime cardiac issues, when he served as chief of staff to Gerald Ford when he was 34 years old in the 70s. So it's a stressful job in and of itself. Mick Mulvaney is not just the chief of staff, but he's also director of the Office of Management and Budget. He is also the head of the Consumer Finance Protection Board. Those had been traditionally full-time jobs in and of itself, and the chief of staff job is like a -a 20-hour-a-day job. How is this guy possibly functioning? And on top of that, you do have you have a new White House counsel, and we have people who have left, uh, key people in the government who have left at the end of this year. It's very difficult, and I know that the president is a unique figure, and he has a unique approach to things, and in many ways that's refreshing, and to many people that's refreshing, but the U.S. government is a little too big the problems a little bit too immense. The decisions that need to be made on a daily basis are so vast that it's just not possible for one person to micromanage them. Remember, the White House has not had a communications director. You know, we look at everyone, we say to ourselves, oh, um, since Hope Hicks left, right? So it's not, they haven't had a communications director. And we said to ourselves, oh, well, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, well, she's the press secretary. It's a little bit of a different job. We look at ourselves, we say, oh, communications director, press secretary, they talk to the press, it's kind of the same thing. Well, not exactly. The press secretary is there to stand before the press and to take inquiries and to fire back, essentially, and to give opinions and to represent the voice of the president. The communications director is there to lay out a communication strategy. Now, we all probably understand by this point two year two years in or four years into the Trump entry into politics that the president feels he's his own best communicator and I agree with that he definitely is his own best communicator the issue has long been is if you don't lay out the strategy and you don't follow it up and you don't tell others what the strategy is they're following behind you instead of kind of leading the way or going alongside you and that's a very difficult thing in politics with especially with this this news cycle and also with the just varying changes of opinion on a daily basis for example james mattis and 
the president has every right to get rid of his secretary of defense. He has a very right to staff the cabinet with the people that he wants to staff it. That should is his right. It should be his right. But it was very clear, kind of, if you do this, meaning pull out of Syria precipitously over Mattis's uh, objections, Mattis made it clear that he was going to resign. And then, at the same time, the president tweeted out, Mattis is retiring. Well, that shouldn't have happened because the message itself would be, that message would be undercut by the letter of resignation that Mattis made public. And you probably, somebody should have known that he was going to make it public. He might have told somebody that he was going to make it public. And then on, then the president was obviously furious. And then, of course, now he's saying that he fired Mattis, which it's plain for everybody to see that Mattis clearly resigned under protest with a letter at the time. And now the president's saying, well, he did a terrible job. He was not doing a good job. And, and now we have somebody leading the Defense Department who has, no con- who has never been in combat, who has never been served in the military, and at the same time has never really run anything along this scale. He has no diplomatic experience, has never been in government before, worked for Boeing for decades. He's a businessman, which is great. But, the, but you know, he, the president hired a businessman, Rex Torreson, also botched that firing, he, Rex Torreson, to go ahead and run the State Department, and that didn't work out very well either, especially for President Trump, because they he was fired as well with a tweet. So we see a lot of we see a lot of potential turmoil continuing into this. And of course, as I said, the government is still shut down and they must find a way to get together and fund the government. It's a very basic function. I think the American people have every right to expect that Washington will be able to do the very basic jobs and services that we pay taxes for. Remember, these are our taxes being paid. And the government and the U.S. government loses money in these shutdowns. Presumably, everybody's going to get their back pay. So if we look at this and we say, oh, well, the government's not functioning, so we don't have to pay, so it's basically free, that's totally incorrect. You assume that everybody who's working is going to get their back pay. Even those people who are staying home are getting their back pay. So they're essentially, they're going to, if they're going to get their back pay, they're on a paid vacation. At the same time, these national parks are not collecting entrance fees. The museums, the Smithsonian's are not collecting. Uh, they're, and they're not selling concessions. And there's all kinds of things that are not happening. The government brings in tremendous amount of revenue from the venues, and as well as selling licenses and all, the, all these functions that the government does that brings in revenue, which is not happening because the government is shut down. And something as simple as I was on, I forget which website yesterday, but 2019 forms were not being uploaded. Okay. Like things like passport renewals, uh, Michael. I mean, there are things that people need to function, which are going to start not happening. And we got to find a way out of that. So where, where does that leave us? Where does that leave the president? Well, the president has kind of backed himself into a corner over $5.4 billion for a wall. And saying, and he put his money where his mouth is by not going on vacation. That is true. He canceled his traditional end-of-year sojourn to Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach. Obviously didn't want to be seen partying and playing golf while federal workers were laid off. And I think that was smart. But clearly he was kind of trapped. He kind of spent the week in absentia. You didn't even 
really see him doing anything except for tweeting, clearly watching a lot of TV because, um, and where do we go from here? So Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer now hold a lot of keys. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, why Chuck Schumer? Well, Chuck Schumer, of course, as Democratic minority leader, still has leverage because of the filibuster because you need 60 votes to pass major legislation in the Senate, especially these budgetary type items uh, like continuing resolutions. But Nancy Pelosi is now has the speaker's gavel, which is quite remarkable. We should dwell on that for a second, that she has survived the wilderness. Of course, she was speaker once. The Democrats lost the House in 2010, and she has returned. She has returned now, eight years later, to take the speaker's gavel. And there was some agitation out there that perhaps she was going to be unseated by Democratic insurgents with their own party would promise not to vote for her. She has very effectively and politically become uh, the big, the, let me stop for a second. The biggest favor that Donald Trump could have done for her was that televised negotiation in the Oval Office a couple weeks ago, where he just really elevated her stature by number one, belittling, belittling her and calling her Nancy uh, over and over. But on top of that, he, she was a very effective foil to the president, which is exactly what Democrats are looking for. And one might think that the President Trump was looking for a foil in Nancy Pelosi. She has long been public enemy number one for Republicans, that they've gone after her over and over and, you know, and made her a big campaign issue. The president has chosen not to do that. In fact, he's held his fire even with regard to Mitt Romney, and we'll get to that in a second. So Nancy Pelosi has brought together, and she will almost certainly be elected speaker today when the House convenes uh, later today, and it's a whole new reality. You're going to have committee chairmen like Adam Schiff on intelligence and Jerry Nadler in judiciary and government oversight uh, as well, which is Elijah Cummings. These guys are going to subpoena the heck out of this administration, and not just doing that on you know some of these more political issues i don't think it's going to be like oh well at least they hopefully they shouldn't with like Mueller let him do his job but some of these basic everyday things that are going on such as the fact and look i think republicans and democrats should both feel this way uh you have people who's the lobby for certain industries now running essentially running these departments there and staffed by former lobbyists who wanted certain things for their clients from government. Lots of conflicts there. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody could never who wants to go into government can never have done business. That's wrong. I, I don't like that at all. We don't need you know just tons of career government people. But what we do need is people who are not just coming straight from industry lobbying positions in order to staff those. And so Nancy Pelosi now comes here as the potential uh, tormentor-in-chief for the president. And how will he deal with this? And the Democrats have had, I think, some very effective and good messaging. Uh, at the top, uh, I think there's been a lot of rhetoric from certain Democrats with regard to impeachment and this. They really should not go there. They're never going to get the president convicted uh, unless you know some, something comes in the Mueller report on that. But uh, Schumer and Pelosi have done a very decent job, uh, I think, finding that middle ground. 
where many Americans are. And we see from the 2018 election that many Americans are on that middle ground. Uh Let's get to Mitt Romney for a second. Mitt Romney been elected as U.S. Senator from the state of Utah, uh, adopted home state for him, and pens an op-ed in the Washington Post, essentially talking about the terrible month that President Trump had in December and how the administration is kind of in meltdown vis-a-vis the chief of staff, vis-a-vis Madness, vis-a-vis a whole bunch of uh, America on the world stage type of things and those decisions, if you like. Not strange. I don't know why he would want to go ahead and put down that marker. And his own niece, uh, Ronna McDaniel, or Romney McDaniel, she used to be, uh, who was the chairwoman of the RNC, kind of disavowed him, which was kind of interesting. Not that that matters. I don't know. Everybody was kind of hanging their hat on that. And the anti-Romney person saying, well, his own niece is disavowing him. Who cares? Like, Okay, you have relatives. People have relatives. Like, they go to the table, and people have relatives, and relatives disagree about politics. And, you know, she says, well, um, you know, she he should not be attacking the president. We often rally behind the president. Well, you know, I don't agree with that either. I mean, you don't have to... And I think, you know, Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, who are both now out, kind of made this clear is that just because I'm a Republican, that doesn't mean I have five, you know, kind of checked my ideas and ideals at the, at the door, you know, country over party. And that was always John McCain's thing. And I I think both sides can learn from that. But one thing I, and it's, you know, the tribal warfare is, is also uh, upsetting is that Democrats can't, Sure, shouldn't attack each other. They should only attack Republicans. Republicans shouldn't attack each other. They should only attack Democrats. When you go to Washington, you're elected by constituency. It's not a parliamentary system like you have in other places. And people should be feel free to represent their constituents and speak their mind, especially in a state like Utah, one of the most conservative states in the whole country, but a state that did not vote uh, did uh, Trump won the state, but uh, he did not win a uh, a huge number because of a third party candidate that was in there, Evan McMullen, uh, who won a large percentage, I think more than 20 percent of the vote in Utah. So instead of traditionally winning like 70 or 80 percent for a Republican in Utah, I think the president kind of squeaked by in there. And. You know, Mitt Romney, what lane is he trying to fill? What's he trying to do? Is he trying to be the conscience of the conservatives? Where is he trying to, what's he trying to show? It's a little bit unclear what the political calculus is, but it is definitely going to be a difference from his, the guy he's replacing, Orrin Hatch, a long-serving Utah Republican who basically kind of didn't care about the things that, some of the things that, and he kind of, he voiced that, publicly and on air, you know, just some of these things didn't care. When he was asked about the Michael Cohen allegations about campaign finance violations, he kind of famously said to a reporter, I don't really care. I don't know that Mitt Romney is going to be that kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he has a tortured history with Donald Trump as well, going back to when he ran for president in 2012. Donald Trump said he begged for his endorsement, Mitt Romney begged for his endorsement, and then 
Romney came back in 2016 and savaged Trump as a charlatan and a con man. But then, strangely enough, supposedly Mitt Romney was on the short list to be Secretary of State. I don't believe that was ever going to happen. You know, so Romney dutifully came to New Jersey to the Bedminster Golf Club to interview. They had dinner very publicly. And look, you know, um, then lo and behold, President Trump supported Romney for Senate in Utah. Now, he may not have much of a choice because it was very clear that Romney was going to win. And Utah is probably a state that he just doesn't have a lot of sway in. But even that is kind of, uh, even that is kind of example of their uh, uh, their tortured relationship. And now Romney opens up with this. Now, the president does not give the double-barreled response, which is interesting. So maybe 2019 is going to be a little bit of a new year for that in general, maybe the president has found out that maybe it's not such a good idea to attack fellow Republicans or savage them. Because as we've mentioned on the show beforehand, the ones that he has savaged, some of them have ended up losing and losing the seats for the party. Not that they lose the primaries, right? Remember, Mark Sanford, he went after the president, the president went after him. Sanford lost the primary and the GOP lost the seat in South Carolina, a long time Republican seat in Arizona. Jeff Flake doesn't run for re-election because he fights with the president. Then, lo and behold, the Democrats win the U.S. Senate seat. And that's an important one. Mia Love in Utah, right? She doesn't get along with the president, but she loses the seat to a Democrat in Utah. So we see the pitfalls on the part of the president from attacking Republicans as well. And that should be the same lesson. You know, Ronna uh, McDaniel, as the chairwoman of the RNC, says that her uncle shouldn't be attacking the president. Well, the president also should refrain from attacking fellow Republicans at the same time. Okay, 2019, folks. And one thing going on in New York City is a historic election, the first citywide special election which will be held for public advocate on February the 26th. That's right. If you live in New York City, you have an opportunity to vote once again in the middle of the dead of the winter, in the cold, in the snow, February 26th. And what does a public advocate do? Well, it's second in line to the mayor. It's a citywide office, and it's being vacated by Tish James, who's becoming New York State Attorney General. She vacated the office on New Year's Day and was sworn in, as was Andrew Cuomo, was sworn in for a third term. And there will be a very interesting election, which will be nonpartisan, which will be highest vote getter of potentially 20 people could be running in this race. And it's a scrum that you could see somebody winning, let's say, with 12, 15, 17, 20 percent of the vote. And there are a bunch of candidates, and when Phil gets back, we'll diagnose them. Most of them are going to be Democrats, and we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about this race because it's the most exciting thing going on right now in the political world, aside from, obviously, what's going on in Washington. So we'll discuss that as that comes along. And, you know, one thing to look for is as we kind of 
look at into 2019 into these uncertain waters of, as I said, a depleted White House staff, the Mueller investigation kind of winding down, the president kind of in a little bit of a political wilderness, not really sure how to deal with these new dynamics of an empowered Democratic House majority, like he kind of thought it was tough to deal with the Republicans. Now he has to deal. And one thing he's not going to be able to do, at least, and not get, and get anything done, is being held to the Freedom Caucus and have them kind of run the agenda and still be able to get anything done because the Freedom Caucus is known for being particularly unyielding in general on pretty much everything. So, as I said, it'll be interesting as we go into 2009, 2019, folks, and stay with us uh, next week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is Spin Class with Michael Fragan. Hopefully, Phil Goldfeder will be back next week. And stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.